everyone, and thank you for joining APQC's podcast today. My name is Madison Lundquist, and I'll be the facilitator for the podcast today. On the phone with me today, I have APQC's Human Capital Management Research Program Manager, Alyssa Tucker, and Talent Analytic Corp's CEO, Greta Roberts. Thank you both for joining. On September 24th, APQC hosted a webinar titled Getting Started with Predictive Workforce Analytics. It was well-registered and well-attended. Alyssa and Greta were our speakers on the webinar, and it went so well that we didn't have enough time to answer all the questions that the attendees had asked. So today, we're going to take some time, and Alyssa and Greta are going to go through those unanswered questions and hopefully solve your questions for you. So I'm going to go ahead and get started. And Alyssa and Greta, just feel free to answer the questions as you'd like. So one of the first questions we have here is, what measures did GAP include in their initial dashboard? Okay, this is Alyssa. Maddie, I can take this one. So the GAP did not share with us specific metrics. However, they did indicate that their uh, HR dashboard had primarily lagging indicators. And so some examples of what those may have been um, are things like cost, cycle time, productivity measures for different HR processes. So for example, the recruiting process or the learning and development process. Um, other measures that are often found on an HR um, dashboard would be things like voluntary turnover, number of training hours, number of candidates in the pipeline for succession for key roles in the organization. Um, the key point for the gap was that their, their HR dashboard um, you know, did not, it primarily was lagging indicators, but by looking at those lagging indicators, business leaders started asking questions that predictive analytics could answer. And so that is how GAP got into um, doing some predictive workforce analytics research. Okay, awesome. Thank you. Um, our next question here is, do you find that an enterprise-wide data policy is needed to ensure that different data sources can work together? Or does that mean that an enterprise-wide data manager type role or steering committee is needed? Maddie, I can probably take that. This is Greta Roberts with Talent Analytics. Um, most of the customers and businesses that we talk to do not have this role as an official role. Um, we do recommend a data governance initiative at your firm, um, but this is more of an ongoing conversation and more of a, um, you know, an entire data governance initiative. So we really don't see data policy as a single person's role or something to go out and hire for. Um, it would be ideal, obviously, if all data was the same so it perfectly fit together without needing to do anything at all, but it's never going to be the case. So it's more of a goal. An example that I thought of that might include, um, let's say, an employee ID in one part of the region, let's say, might have leading zeros on it, and in another part of the world or the US, they might not have leading zeros. Um, or a field name might have a different meaning in one group versus another. And when you go ahead and do analysis across different silos, you are always going to run into different meanings or that you're like, wow, this is a little bit different. But um, the reason that you work with smart data scientists or smart data analysts is that they're going to be able to resolve the issues that I mentioned above and more. So consider this more of an ongoing conversation, more of a longer 
long-term plan versus an individual role or something that you need to have in place before you make progress and before you begin using the data that you have. Now, uh, let us be very clear. You can do predictive work and great predictive work before you have an enterprise-wide data policy in place. One thing that I wanted to bring up that's a concern and a concern by perhaps this person asking the question is that sometimes people um, you know, believe they have to have absolutely everything in place before they begin. And so you know, that's going to be a three, five, four, five, eight, ten year process and you're going to be left way behind so you don't want to kind of use this as an excuse to put things. The other thing that happens if you have one person or let's say two people having the official role is that that becomes kind of a lot of power for one person to have and they can stop progress because they're really going to be focused on perfection, which when you have it as one person's role, the way they get measured on success to have data perfect. So again, think of it as a goal. Think of it as a, a long-term evolving strategy, as a conversation, but think light touch. Um, not that there has to be this big official thing that, you know, slams all sorts of compliance issues on the people trying to do predictive analytics. Okay, great. If, what would you say to someone if they didn't have a clear scope on their HR analytics project or even a starting hypothesis, and how would they start an HR analytics project that would then increase their likelihood of success? Yeah, another great question. It feels to me actually like there's two questions in there. Um, first of all, there's no way to justify a budget or get started on an analytics project where you have no question to answer. The only reason for data um, and the only reason data becomes interesting or useful or an analytics project is going to be interesting or useful is that it supports or answers a question. So, Blindly poking around at data to see what you can find rarely leads to interesting things, but I have to tell you, a lot of HR people are saying, you know, we have all of this data, we're sitting on it, and we're now going to do this exercise and either do it internally or pay a consultant to take all of our data and see if they find something interesting. And that's not a, uh, you know, a small proposition. We call this the Wikipedia effect. Um, imagine somebody saying, you know what, I found some amazing um, data in Wikipedia and then HR going, really? We have our own Wikipedia. So imagine just starting to read Wikipedia from the beginning, beginning on the A's and just reading all the way through. You're going to have some general learning. You're going to run across some interesting things. And imagine coming back and saying, oh my goodness, I found something out about a heart attack. But nobody there, but people are like, you know, well, nobody here has had a heart attack in a million years. Um, it's not going to do you any favors to do kind of this Wikipedia effect. So if you don't have a hypothesis, if you don't have a business problem to solve, I personally think it's a waste of money. The second question, though, that was in there in terms of how to start a project to ensure success really is to start with a problem to solve. And if you don't have one and if you're getting pressure from the executives to begin doing something predictive, you're really going to hurt yourself by going into, you know, kind of that Wikipedia effect. Um, you want to avoid it. You're not going to get funded. But I want to be very clear, there are lots of projects to solve and lots of ways you can use your data. The thing you want to do if you can't find a, a, a question to answer is begin actually talking to the line of business and ask them one thing. 
what is the greatest place that you have where there is an employee turnover? What is the role inside of your organization where there is the most employee turnover? They will very quickly identify a problem. And then you can go back to your data and say, how can we use this to help solve that problem? Wonderful. Do you think that smaller organizations can use predictive analytics, such as organizations that have fewer than 1,000 employees? Yeah, that's another great question. So obviously, predictions, you know, predictions are the ability to take a look at um, patterns. And based on the patterns, say, you know, there's a fair degree of confidence that um, we can now make a prediction about the future. So, in order to see the patterns inside of data, it requires a large enough sample size to make the prediction from. So the smaller the organization, the less internal data they're going to have. If they only have three employees or 30 or 100 or even 500, you know, what internal data do you have to take advantage of predictive approaches? Unless they rely on industry predictions that will perhaps be vendors saying, hey, we've looked at this particular kind of sector or we've looked at an industry or, um, you know, we know everything about sales reps and therefore, you know, we're making these statements. We're a little dubious, truthfully, about um, me personally, about industry predictions um, because there's no way to actually tie it to your specific organization as an example. If somebody talks about, we know what sales representatives are, go ahead and use our predictive analytics during the um, talent acquisition cycle, clearly there's a difference between sales reps at a startup and sales reps at um, IBM, as an example. And so you do yourself a little bit of a disservice. So if I were at an organization where they had 1,000 or less employees, um, I would definitely look to see if there are industry benchmarks that I could use, but I would be very skeptical and make sure that they apply as much as possible to your organization. Okay, great. Makes sense. And um, we have a couple more questions here. The next question is, how would you deal with the human element when trying to implement workforce analytics, especially when dealing with employee performance? Great, yes. At the end of the day, you know, predictive analytics um, or implementing something new like, hey, there's a whole new layout in the cafeteria, they're new. And so new things is really, it's about change management. So new things are met with skepticism and some people jump on board very quickly and say, great, I want to, you know, embrace something new. I don't even know, need to know anything about it. And other people say, I'm really skeptical and it's going to take me a long time to uh, jump on board. So you have skepticism regardless of what it is, and that's not different, any different for uh, predictive analytics work. If you're forcing people to use something they haven't been involved in, then you're going to find pushback. So we find it's really great in any work that we do or in other successful programs, predictive work that we've seen, to include business experts all along the way. And by the way, you actually need that whether you want to or not because you need feedback from the organization um, from business experts that can speak on behalf of certain groups of people and that can be advocates to say this really is how it works inside the organization or, um, you know, or how it doesn't. The other thing I think there's a lot of fear with predictive analytics that it's going to replace business experts or that you're going to be forced to make a decision about something. And so we try to help people understand that predictive analytics doesn't replace business experts. The data it gives 
provides leaders with additional data when they're making a decision. So it's additional data. It doesn't replace um, the business expert. One unique aspect about predictive analytics, though, is that the result of the decision, if you have two leaders and one completely decides to ignore the predictive analytics data hiring decision, is that the result of the decisions can be measured. You know, did it help? What was the business result? Meaning, um, you know, if your decision included the predictive suggestion, were you more or less successful um, at the end of the day? Did sales go up? Did attrition go down? So a good predictive model should be providing those leaders with feedback um, about, you know, whether or not the inclusion of that data was successful. Um, and then that will help them to decide personally going forward whether or not they want to take the model's advice. Okay, great. Thank you. And one final question we have here. As you are using workforce analytics for talent in HR, have you had any barriers in relation to using this with or for hiring employees that are or will be unionized? Yeah, it's a great question. We happen to actually have personal experience with this. Uh, we worked with a company that was a union organization. It was owned by Dow Jones and Company, um, which has a lot of union roles. Um, unionized organizations or roles are an especially perfect target for predictive analytics, and here's why. Um, an example is, you know, once an employee has been hired into a union role, and I think they have something like 30 or 90 days, which is really kind of a trial, if they pass through that and they're now a full-time employee and they're beyond that, it's really impossible to fire them for poor performance, even if they you know, are just a horrible employee, horrible performer, don't show up for work, et cetera. And sometimes it really takes that long you know, or beyond that 30 to 90 day trial to find out if a person was a great or terrible hire. So the ability to screen in and screen out candidates before you hire them is extraordinarily useful specifically for union roles so that you don't get into a place where you're carrying a lot of low performers. Um, since I said we personally worked with a union organization, um, and specifically these were for uh, salespeople, um, the important thing that we needed to do up is to work with the union to help them understand how predictive analytics actually reduces hiring, hiring bias and helps you to select great performers for that role. So really what they're concerned about is bias, and I think it's important to go ahead and work with and help them understand how a predictive model works. But um, there should be no issues if you're very transparent about what you're doing. Okay, great. Well, that concludes the podcast for today, and I really appreciate Alyssa and Greta for joining. If anyone has any questions that were not answered either on the, on the podcast today or our webinar from last week, feel free to reach out to me by email at mlundquist, that's M-L-U-N-D-Q-U-I-S-T at apqc.org. You can listen to the recording of the webinar by visiting apqc.org and accessing it along with the slides that live in APQC's knowledge base. Thanks again, Alyssa and Greta. We really appreciate it. We'll be